Christ is the Cure. We are continuing through Nicaea, and now we are going to begin this section on Christology. Let me get this situated over here. Um, so we got through, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. Now we get into, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, and we're going to cover that whole clause here. So beginning with the historical discussion, um, we're focusing on Jesus Christ now, and so it's important to remember that um, the discussions around the Trinity that developed for 325 and 381 really centered around the debate regarding the status of Jesus Christ. That's why whenever you get to 325, Whenever he gets the clause on the Holy Spirit, there's really nothing there except, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. And then in 381 at Constantinople, you can see that major expansion on that section because that was a more pressing issue for 381. Um, but what really set everything off had to do with the different discussions around who Jesus was. And then, of course, the Aaron controversy, which elicited 325. And then some of those details needed to be hashed out and more precise for 381. And then we also have the spirit fighters who denied the deity of the Holy Spirit. That would be addressed as well in this confession, but we'll get there when we get there. So this is all to say that whenever we talked about the first section, the historical and the theological details uh, were um, less involved for we believe in one God, the Father, because a lot of that was... Um, you know, straightforward for them as it is for us. Uh, so this is where we're going to start getting into more of the nitty gritty because this is where the controversy is really centered around the, uh, Jesus Christ and then the Holy Spirit. Uh, so the history for this clause can technically be linked, first and foremost, of course, back to Paul. Uh, and we're going to cite the text that the early church really, really leaned into, and that's 1 Corinthians 8, 5 through 7. And Paul says here, There is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. So this particular text came to be foundational in regards to the lordship of Jesus as the mediator between God and man and the only way to the Father. Um, we typically think of Jesus as Lord in terms of kingship, which is accurate, but to confess Jesus as Lord was to confess the mediation of Jesus between God and man. If you think about David as a mediator um, between God and man, uh, you can see that connection. There's that lordship, that kingship, where the king would represent God and his rule on earth. And so you have Jesus doing that here. Um, and so to confess Jesus, Lord, is a confession of mediation, kingship. Um, and so 
Gerald Bray actually summarizes it like this. It's a threefold understanding. First, how he shares in the life of the eternal father. Second, how he mediates the power of God to the material creation that he orders as logos. And third, how he stands as the mediator between the father and humanity, which he redeems. Um, one thing I want to sidebar here is that whenever we're talking about types and typology, and we're talking about David and we're talking about kingship and we're talking about divine sonship, because there's an element where the son of God would be used for the kings of Israel, for example. And they all point to Jesus because he is the son of God. And so they are shadows of the reality who is Christ, right? And so that's kind of the same thing here with this ultimate mediator, the ultimate uh, one in communion with the Father who mediates the power of God to the material creation and orders, and then the one who's the mediator between the Father and humanity, uh, which he redeems. And so this stress landed on Jesus as the divine agent of God, whose divinity is wholly to be understood in relation to the Father, and the notion that had been presented that uh, Jesus possesses some type of inferior divinity would be rejected. Uh, Jesus, as the mediator or agent and Lord, displays that there is not an alternative arrival to God, but one in accordance with God or in harmony with the Father, uh, as the Cappadocians would put it, right? He is the ultimate, the perfect revelation, the exact imprint of the Father. He and the Father are one. When you see him, you see the Father because of who he is in relation to the Father. And then not only this, but he is the perfect mediator. He goes into the Holy of Holies. He intercedes on behalf, and he is sitting at the right hand of the Father as Lord, and all things are put underneath his feet. Um, so Jesus as the divine agent, the one through whom all things were made, shows first the preexistent Lord and his power. And this reality of the word, or logos, um, actually has this predominant theme in Proverbs 8, which would become a, a very important text in these debates, John 1, and of course the parallels with Genesis 1. Um, but these could only these texts could only be understood properly when considering the co-equality of the Father and the Son, the co-eternality of the Father and the Son, the oneness of the Son, the, the divine Son in relation to the divine Father. Now, looking at Jesus Christ, so we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, we find really the same understanding that the title of Christ is related to uh, the line of David being messianic. Um, but because of the theological struggles, their focus leaned into the divinity of the incarnate Lord. Uh, so within the plan of God, we find the Father planning the mission of Christ, and the scriptures point to and culminate in the incarnation. Uh, and so the realization of the incarnation is this ultimate culmination of the divine agent, the Son, being sent by the Father as Christ, the Christ and Lord. Um, by confessing Jesus as Christ, the church kept the reality of the Old Testament relevant against some of those Gnostics that would try to detach from the Old Testament. And so they kept also uh, this tight-knit plan of redemption from Genesis to Revelation. There was no um, different plans, plan A, plan B, and plan C of redemption, but there was one culmination, and that finds itself realized in the Incarnation and then the work of Christ, which began with the work of the Incarnation. So 
it is worth discussing some of these fundamentals of the title Christ here because um, sometimes we can miss it and think of it as the last name of Jesus. I know that there's a lot of people who think that Christ is his name, but it should be understood as a title. Uh, and Christ, we need to understand, comes from the word Messiah, which means anointed one. It's from the Hebrew. And so it signified a person who was anointed by the Holy Spirit, who was chosen and anointed and blessed and empowered by the Holy Spirit, who was to function as a king and priest over Israel. Now in Greek, this term Messiah or Mashiach would be translated as Christos, which of course became known as Christ in English. So the term occurs over 500 times and it is used of Jesus to designate his status as the Messiah. Christ is not his name, but rather a title that is intrinsically linked to Jesus as Jesus' king. So when you read Jesus Christ in your Bible, you are essentially reading that Jesus is the anointed chosen king. And Daniel 7, 13 through 14 becomes significant here um, as it pictures the Son of Man, which of course is another title for Jesus that is important. Uh, but it points out that the Son of Man will be this divine God-man who will be appointed king and given dominion and glory with the kingdom and subdue all of his enemies. Uh, so that's the historical background of these discussions. There was this emphasis on the eternality of the Son in light of him being Christ and Lord. Um, and this really gets fleshed out more with the biblical support, so we'll move forward with that. So when it comes to the biblical support of Jesus as Lord and Messiah or Christ, it really is easy to pull texts and just or laying them out. Um, what is a bit more difficult to demonstrate is why the early church viewed Jesus as Lord to be a depiction of Jesus as the divine agent and God himself. So it seems that it would be appropriate for us to focus on that aspect um, because the, the aspect of him being generically Lord or generically Christ is um, very simple. So whenever we look at the various texts. One that we can look at initially is the Shema. The Shema, again, is the confession of the Jewish people that's found in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. It says, um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, we actually see this development from Paul around the Shema by noting that God is one but he paints this in this Trinitarian sense. He says, um, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. So in the early church, this text was not only fundamental to this particular line, but it was linked to the Shema, and you'll find people discuss this today as well, um, and so in the Old Testament, God and Lord stress two persons who are one God. And uh, this idea can be found elsewhere in the New Testament, even with the inclusion of the Holy Spirit in texts like Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. But whenever we look at this text of Paul um, in Corinthians, it becomes very apparent what he's doing here because it follows that although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth— as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God. And so there's this sharp contrast over and against the many gods and lords of the pagans. And while some would point out that the stress is not necessarily on the unity of the Godhead, but rather the uniqueness of the only God that Christians worship as Father and Son, 
Um, there's still this underlining idea of unity that's present. Um, so what we have here is a sharp contrast of the many gods and many lords of the pagans and this establishment of this is the Christian faith. We have one God um, and one Lord. And following each of these confessions by Paul, there's this divine activity of creation that follows. Gordon Fee in his New International Commentary on Corinthians is excellent, but he's, he points out that here Paul doesn't call Christ God explicitly, but the formula is constructed in a way that you can, can't really deny its Trinitarian implications because of how he can assert that there's only one God, and he equally asserts that there's only one Lord, uh, which is significant. And the reason why is because in the Old Testament, in the Greek Old Testament, when translating the divine name Yahweh, it would be translated as Lord, as Kyrios. And so you have this singularity to one God and this proper designation of the divine Son. Uh, and so we're, we're actually going to discuss a little bit more on that Kyrios Yahweh um, and more connections like that in the New Testament here in a minute. Um, but what um, Gordon Fee adds on here is that it should be especially noted that Paul feels no tension of any kind between the affirmation of monotheism and the clear distinction between the two persons of the Father and Jesus Christ. Um, as it is with other statements in the New Testament, Jesus is the one through whom God both created and redeemed. Gordon Fee continues saying that, uh, Thus, together, the two sentences embrace the whole of human existence. God the Father is the source of all things, which were mediated through the creative activity of the Son, and the Son is the one through whom God also redeemed us so that our existence is now for and unto God. And before going back to that concept of Yahweh, Kyrios, um, another text that's often pointed out as a Trinitarian text is John 17, where Jesus calls his follower to be one as he and the Father is one. And so what you'll find here is the mutual indwelling of the Father and the Son, which is highlighted in verse 21 of chapter 17. And then the oneness of the Father and the Son is used to point to the oneness of the people of Christ. And so the basis for being united as one people who are united in Christ as one body is the oneness of the Father and the Son. Um, but let's go ahead and go into some New Testament texts that are relevant to the specific terminology of Lord. So the most common title in the New Testament for Jesus is Lord. Uh, the term can be used different ways. It can be understood as formal, like yes, sir. And it can also be understood as the translation of the divine name in Greek, Kyrios, Lord. Now, the New Testament authors use the Greek Old Testament um, and they apply Old Testament texts to Jesus that use the divine name, Yahweh, but of course, with the Greek, Kyrios. So we can't survey all of them. There, there's, there's quite a few. But I want to paint a picture with a couple. And so I'm going to supplement Yahweh into the translation. And you can, you can see um, in your English translation, in the Old Testament in particular, the Lord will be all capitalized to indicate that behind it is the divine name. So let's go ahead and look at this. When introducing John the Baptist in Matthew's account, uh, Matthew tells us that Isaiah spoke of the coming of John the Baptist to prepare the way of the Lord. Now, the text of Matthew 3.3 3 says, 
uh, regarding John the Baptist, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So John the Baptist is preparing the way of Jesus. And he, in the text quotes Isaiah 43. So if you read Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, you'll read, In the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh, or all caps, Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So here we have John the Baptist preparing the way of Jesus, and Isaiah 43 is quoted here. Well, who is John the Baptist preparing the way for? He's preparing the way for Jesus. Isaiah 43 notes that this is preparing the way for Yahweh, Kyrios, Lord. And it also says, make straight in a highway, a desert for our God. So not only is this there, there's this preparation for Yahweh, but there's also this making straight of the highway for our God. Within the context of Isaiah 40, we see that Yahweh is returning to Israel as king whenever God's people are in the wilderness needing a savior. And of course, whenever you look at the other gospels, you can see this introduction of John the Baptist with the same citation talking about John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus and the original citation is preparing the way for Yahweh on the salvation that the prophets promised from Yahweh. Um, so it is Yahweh who will have his way prepared and God who will have his path made straight. And of course, for the sake of hermeneutics, the theological stress in context of this is the call for repentance of the people because now the Savior's coming, get ready to repent, right? And you see that in these uh, gospel accounts following this passage. So another example would be Isaiah 44, verse 6. And the text says, Thus says the Lord, or Yahweh, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. So this text makes it clear that Yahweh is the first and the last, uh, which was a way to indicate that the Lord was the one in the beginning. He is the only one, the only God. And this is stated elsewhere, such as in Isaiah 41, verse 4, who has performed and done this calling the generations from the beginning, I, the Lord, or Yahweh, the first and with the last, I am he. Uh, and again, in Isaiah 48, verse 12. And they're all saying the same thing, essentially, that there is no one like Yahweh. There is no God before nor after Yahweh. He is the first and the last, and there's no God beside him. Uh, so what gets interesting is whenever we look to the book of Revelation, we see this statement applied directly to Jesus. And you see this in Revelation 117. Um, Jesus is speaking after appearing before John in power. And he says, fear not, I am the first and the last. Now, you logically can't have two firsts and two lasts. And whenever you see Isaiah and you see the way that it's applied to Yahweh, you can't get around what is being said here. There is no God besides Yahweh. Um, Optimist is that this also occurs in Revelation 2.8. So John is being spoken to, um, and he's being told to write to the various churches by Jesus. And Jesus presents us with kind of like your standard greeting that you would find even by um, like Paul whenever he's writing his letters. Uh, and he says, uh, To the angel of this church, the words of the first and last who died and came to life. And so if there was any question about the first and last and who the first and last is in these other texts, who died and came to life? The first and last in this context. So not only is the first and last expression applied here, but it's clarified with no mistake that this is referring to Jesus. Now, this is remarkable 
um, to the person of Christ. And what is being conveyed here is just really difficult to avoid. And this again happens in chapter one of Revelation in verse eight, where it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, while the language of Lord God can be a bit confusing because God typically um, denotes the Father in the New Testament, the context prior tells us that this is about Jesus. It says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Verse 7. So if there's any doubt that this phrase should be attributed to Jesus, you can see this again in Revelation 22, 12-13. And it's Jesus speaking. He says, Behold, I am coming soon to repay each for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Moving on a little bit from here, um, and I highly recommend you go check these out for yourself, uh, look through them. But another one is in Isaiah, and it's it's one that's a little bit missed because it's just more of a close parallel. And so Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 through 13, Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord, or Yahweh of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. Now, if you compare that to 1 Peter 3, 14 through 15, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. So here you make Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, holy, and here Christ the Lord, honor as holy. So this connection is not as blatant as the others. Um, but what you find here is that the phrase is first directed to Yahweh and then Jesus later on in Peter. And then again in Isaiah, Isaiah 45, verses 22 through 23, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Um, now, in verse 21, if you need to double-check, this is Yahweh speaking. And it's fascinating, too, um, that it says, Was it not I, Yahweh? There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. So who's the God and who's the Savior? And what's further interesting is that that um, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, is used in the New Testament. Uh, and so here you have Yahweh um, saying that I am... God, there is no other God beside me. Um, and if you remember Philippians, which most people do, Philippians 2, 10 through 11 says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And this is about Jesus. This is right after the great um, passage about Jesus taking on human flesh uh, and being obedient to the point of death on the cross. And now he's being vindicated. He's being lifted up and glorified. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, and in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So, Isaiah 45 presents us with this idea that it is only Yahweh who is God and Savior. There is none beside him, and 
every knee shall bow to him and every tongue shall swear allegiance to him. And then we have the Trinitarian fleshing out of this idea progressively in Philippians 2, 10 through 11. It is uh, the Father has given glory to the Son so that the Son's name, Jesus, will have every knee bowing to him in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue shall confess. So contextually and systematically, we see how the context of Lord Yahweh is applied to Jesus in multiple ways. Really, you can just kind of keep going down. There's, there's a lot of interesting texts, but I only have a couple more for you guys here. So in the text of Joel 2.32, which says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Yahweh shall be saved. But if you remember your Romans 10, 11 through 14, you see this text applied to Jesus. For the scripture says that everyone who believes in him, Jesus, will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Yahweh will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed. So Jesus is called Yahweh. So while it could be said that the Lord here could be directed at the Father, the context is clearly believing in Jesus, the one who was sent. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And then one more here is Psalm 68, verse 18. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord... God or Yahweh God may dwell there. And Ephesians 4, 7 ends with Paul saying that Christ has gifted the church and verse 8 applies Psalm 68, 18 to Christ, undoubtedly confirmed by verse 9, which talks about Christ's descent. So you have Christ's descent, the giving of gifts, and Christ's ascent here. So again, another, um, another example. So the, the main point is that the idea of Jesus as Lord. So whenever it says we believe in one God, the father, and we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, they are affirming not only the explicit words of Paul, where he makes that Trinitarian sense out of the Shema and where we have these connections from the new Testament, but they are doing so in a way that confirms that Jesus is co-eternal and he is in fact divine. And of course, as we get through, you know, the creed, this will really be driven home in different ways. Um, but their reasoning, this this emphasis on Jesus as divine from we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ was not unfounded. So the question we get to here is how do we apply this? Now we could talk about how Jesus is divine over against those groups that would deny that, but that would be best saved for later because again, those points are really going to be driven home. So applications won't be directed towards the deity of Christ, but it's also unavoidable because Christ is the divine King and Lord. So Gordon Fee notes in his commentary on Corinthians that Christian ethics, for example, are grouped in proper Christian theology. Uh, And this is a consistent reality of scripture. Um, Christian ethics should not be reduced to um, other bases, like just simple living, good living, um, having good things done for you. Um, It is based in the theological reality of who our God and Lord is. So this confession is, significant. So as we serve the Lord Jesus, we realize that because of Jesus's eternal identity, we have first off a secure future. We don't have to rely on the feeble possibility of failure that comes from human leaders like those who pointed forward to Jesus. Even David had failures. 
And we can even start going through the judges because, well, judges is interesting. But the point is that Jesus is powerful and sufficient and has the power of eternal life, resurrection, and rules over all. Uh, We can recognize that we will be kept providentially secure in both redemption and in the kingdom to come. This also means that our allegiance to the king is not a mere allegiance to a typical government or monarch, but rather allegiance to the perfect exemplar of what it means to be a good and perfect king, the, the proper picture of kingship and authority. And that means that at the end of the day, regardless of what happens in our lands on this earth and their governments, our ultimate place of accountability will be at the throne of God. In some sense, the church is a colony, every congregation a colony of the kingdom of heaven within their foreign nations. And while we respect, honor, and pray for the leaders of these earthly kingdoms, uh, because that is proper obedience to Jesus, we do so because it's obedience to Jesus first and foremost. And we ultimately declare that they are leaders only because Christ has left it to be so. And they too are subject to stand before him in accountability. So to say that Jesus is Lord in regards to his kingship is not to declare that there are not other lords necessarily, but rather that the ultimate Lord, the King of Kings, is Jesus Christ. To say that Jesus is Lord, however, in the fullest sense, the divine agent of the Father, who is the Christ, is to declare that there is no other king.